0: The very first email that was ever sent was way back in, does anybody know the year? 1965. Would you have guessed that? I didn't. Uh, It was between two MIT students who shared a computer at a lab, and they had come up with a program that they named Mailbox, interestingly enough. Essentially you'd leave a message in a mailbox for the next user who would then log into the exact same computer and they would open whenever they got to the lab and that was the first kind of email, sort of. Email took another huge leap forward a few years later when the US Department of Defense linked up a few computers for inter-office memos in 1969. But email, very similar to what you and I know it today, it only came a few more, a few years later when Ray Tomlinson stepped on the scene. By this time, the program that he used to host electronic mail had grown so rapidly that receiving someone else's information was fairly commonplace. So you wouldn't know exactly who would be receiving the email that you just sent. That's a problem, I would think, um, key to the issue of email. So Tomlinson commandeered the use of an archaic, rarely used character on the keyboard that had previously only been used for business accounting, and thus the at symbol was born. Uh, From there, the rest is history. Queen Elizabeth was the very first head of state to jump in on electronic mail for department and diplomatic uses. She used her username HME2, Her Majesty Elizabeth II at whichever computer she was using. That's a whole lot better than the first email address that I had in junior high. Don't ask about that. It's embarrassing. In 1978, though, Gary Thurick, uh, a name that should go down in infamy, made his first million off of phishing and spam email campaigns. That guy's a jerk. In 1979, a 14-year-old New Jersey dentistry student, you heard me right, a 14-year-old dentistry student, student by the name of Shiva Udari, I think. Um, He was the first to patent and copyright a program actually named email. In 1989, that slogan, You've Got Mail, was first chiming on our computers. It was coined in 1991. It hosted the very first email sent from space in which astronaut Shannon Lucid emailed Houston, Hello, Earth. Having a great time. Wish you were here. Hasta la vista, baby. From there, it really all devolves into what we now know as email. You know, receiving 392 spam emails every day for a -a once-in-a-lifetime flash sale happening right now and never again all going to our junk mail folder. And then the occasional pertinent office memo that you overlook. There's the occasional, you know, email from that deposed Nigerian prince that we sometimes respond to as well. Email has become such a commonplace aspect of our life. But I really can remember the liberty and maturity I felt as a sixth grader being allowed to sign up for a Hotmail account in the mid-1990s. Looking back at it, that username, that chosen address, was one of the first allowances of tech independence in my life. That's how friends could reach out to me, And it was that time where I I had reached that level. As we're working through our way of the, the Lord's Prayer this summer, you might be tempted to quickly pass over the first couple of lines, our Father, which art in heaven, merely as an address for your prayers, kind of like our Father at heaven, but I don't want you to do that. We're not the first to do that, by the way. There is a probably the book that is known as the seminal piece of literature on the Lord's Prayer. It's written by a Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson in 1692. It is weighty, and it has a, a, lot, of, a lot in it. It's 332 pages long and very, very tiny text where he expounds in detail 62 words. The model prayer is 62 words, and he goes on for 332 pages expounding on the Lord's Prayer. But in those pages, which I'm slowly working through right now, Watson calls the first part of verse 9 merely the preface. Our Father, which art in heaven, just the the preface. And he really only devotes a couple of paragraphs, and then he goes on and writes whole chapters on other phrases. But I'd like to suggest to you that this phrase, Our Father, which art in heaven, is so much more than an address for God. It speaks to the Lord's very character, and it teaches us something about the nature of prayer itself. So if you weren't here last week, I apologize. We need to do a little work so that we can take a running start into our phrase this morning, which art in heaven. Uh, Last week, I really only preached on one word in the prayer, Father, Father. I'm sure that you kind of groaned within yourselves realizing that at this pace, this is going to be a lot more than a summer series. This is going to be a five-summer series or something like that. But truthfully, I don't even think that I did that one word justice. When Jesus taught us to pray saying, Our Father, He was affirming some wonderful truths. Our Father has links all the way back to Exodus chapter 4, the first time when Moses was supposed to stand in front of the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he was supposed to say in Exodus 4.22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So Christian, when we think of this phrase, our Father, which art in heaven, we are aligning ourselves with the greater congregation of the people of God in history, even the children of Israel as far back in Exodus chapter 4. God wants us to get ready for the new Exodus. We are going to be free at last when we pray, "Our Father." We are hearkening back to that Exodus, leaving that slavery behind. And in the New Testament, the Church Age in which we are a part right now, there is this sense where we are leaving that old slavery behind, and we are clinging to our Father. But it's more than even that. You should notice throughout this entire prayer, verses nine through thirteen. That there is not one singular first person pronoun. For those of us who don't know grammar, like me, <laughs> there's no I's or me's in the entire Lord's Prayer. Look at it. Look in your Bible, verses 9 through 13. You don't see any I, there's no me. Compare that to your own prayer life. I know that we're going to be working up against some mental muscle memory in our prayer life, but next time you pray, pay attention to the number of times that you say, Lord, I just believe, or Father, will You do this for me? Listen, I'm not saying that that's evil, but I do think that we separate ourselves from the biggest blessing of prayer when we only pray in isolation and only pray I and me and my and mine. When we pray our Father, we're hearkening to the corporate prayer of God's people. This is important. Have you ever felt alone in your prayer? Am I the only one? Please help me. Have you ever felt like you are the only one in all the earth who is praying for a particular thing to be done? A few weeks ago, we, we cut out a little time in my Sunday school class for everyone to just kind of stop and give testimonies about times in their lives when certain key people in their life came alongside them, and prayed with them over a particular issue. It was a sweet time of remembering the faithfulness of God's people who are surrounding us and wanting us to pray with each other. I, I, I recall the story of last year when Rachel and I and the girls, we went to Moody Church in Chicago, and it was a, a commonplace thing, it seemed, that when when the prayer of benediction was prayed and and church was dismissed that people didn't just leave it was this grassroots effort people turned to each other and there in the pews and in the seats you had people sitting and stopping and and holding each other and holding hands and putting hands on each, each other's shoulders and they were just praying for each other it was so natural for them to do that. They weren't asked by the pastor to do that. I didn't see anything in the bulletin which encouraged them to do that. It was commonplace. It was normal for them to pray together our Father. Prayer is a corporate event. When we pray according to God's will, our Father, in a very real sense, we are joining our prayers with the universal Christian church. Even when we are praying alone, we are, in a sense, praying with the larger body of Christ. You say, Corey, I never heard that before. Our Father. Get this, Christian. When you pray, you are joining your voice with believers meeting right now in the Ukraine and in Russia, in secret in North Korea and in China, under threat of violence in Afghanistan and Somalia. Christians in Yemen and Libya, Pakistan and Iran, they are building strength today because of the prayers of the people of God. Missionaries are truly gaining right now from your prayer life. Don't ask me to explain it, but hearts are being softened, souls are being drawn, earthly principalities and powers are shaking as the United Church of God prays, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done, your kingdom come. There are poor and hungry believers who are being filled today as we pray, give us this day our daily bread. The stubborn and embittered heart is softening to forgiveness right now as we Christians, we voice and forgive us our debts. The husband who is thinking of throwing it all away for a foolish tryst is being spiritually kicked. The rebellious daughter is having second thoughts when we plead, deliver us From evil. You, Christian, right now in your pew, praying, Our Father, you are joining your heart and your voice and your prayer to the millions of other believers right now, proclaiming, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This communal sense of prayer. You say, Corey, I don't feel that. It's been a long time since someone came to me in my pew, put their hand on my shoulder, and said, can I pray with you about this certain issue? It's been a long time. You feel alone in your prayer life. Christian, can I remind you that if you feel lonely in your prayer, you are never alone. Even if you are the only individual on the face of the earth praying for God's will 1 John chapter 2 says that you have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus. Our Father. The hour in our Father isn't just a, a personal plea to make the Lord a personal God, as I ended last week. I believe that's part of it. But our Father, it, it joins us to the greater history of God's family, and connects us with current believers right now. But more than anything else, the phrase, our Father, shows we are in a relationship, family relationship, with Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? You noticed it when we prayed, didn't you? in directing His disciples to pray, Jesus said, pray this way, Our Father. I'm not the smartest in the world. But when somebody says, Our, that means you and me. Yours and mine. There's a common theme that you'll find all throughout church history which calls Jesus Christ our elder brother. This is taken from a number of biblical sources, but none better than when Jesus himself in Mark chapter 3, verse 35 said, For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Because of his allusion to mother, you might not think that Jesus was actually speaking of a family relationship that we have with him spiritually, but he is. In fact, Paul affirms the theological truth of being sons and daughters with the Father. Brotherhood with Christ. Romans 8 verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Christian, I'm telling you, if you feel alone in your prayer life, if there's nobody else on earth, you have an elder brother who is right now bombarding the throne of grace on your behalf. You've got an older brother and he just happens to be an advocate, a good one who can plead your case before the good father and just judge. You are never alone in your prayer life. Our father connects us to those in times past those universal and more specific it links us to our relationship with Christ so don't pass over our father so quickly it's more than an introduction and which art in heaven is so much more than an address where you can find him i have this habit of making all these notes in a notebook all throughout the week. And then I really sat down in earnest later in the week and I type out my sermons. But if you came across that chicken scratch of a notebook, you could not make heads nor tails of what I was going to preach on Sunday morning. In that small notebook I have in my bag in my office, this rough-in of the sermon from earlier this week. I wrote down something that looks like this in my notebook. Address all access authority. Address all access authority. For those of you who have told me time and time again, I wish you outlined your sermon so that I could take better notes. That's about as good as you're going to get from me. That is not parallel. I would fail every middle school English class in the world off of that outline. But I think that phrase or that picture, address all access authority, I think it best exemplifies our Father, which art in heaven. You see, knowing that God is in heaven ought to remind me of three aspects of my relationship with Him. Number one, I should always stand in awe of Him. We're in a strange place in the modern church. In some ways, it's so good and helpful. In other ways, I don't know if that it's not a little bit of a detriment. We have made a relationship with the holy, almighty, creator God of the universe. We have made it so casual. Nonchalant. I'm not saying that you've got to wear a three-piece suit before you do your devotions in the morning, but we, have coming, we are coming to the Father in a flippant way. And in the good way, I I think that that works against this hard-nosed picture of a God who wants to keep you at arm's distance because that's not the God of Scripture at all. He welcomes with open arms like our Father in the Prodigal Son that we looked at last week. But I ought always to approach Him with awe. if you want me to explain the nature of God to you, using easy, accessible illustrations, you're looking in the wrong place. This is the wrong church for you. I want you to stay, but you're not going to hear it from me from this pulpit. I cannot do that. I'll go a step further. Anyone who tries to explain God, His nature and His abilities, through language of creation and illustrative phrases not found in God's Word, they're on shaky and dangerous ground. The fact is, God is wholly other. Totally other. Unlike any that you can think of or compare Him to. There is no one like him, not even close. It blows my my mind when people think that they can try to explain the purposes of God. I mean, did you hear what Brother Bill read in the call to worship this morning? First Timothy, like this is just some passing phrase in the verse, verse 15. It calls him God, He is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. If we just stop there in that one verse, God is described as the most glad. That's blessed. I love thinking about God being the most glad. He is called the only dynasty. Kings will bow before him. Lords will do his bidding. They'll serve him. But we go on in verse 16, it says, who alone has immortality, literally, that means eternal deathlessness, isn't that good? Dwelling in unapproachable lights, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Paul's purpose in 1 Timothy 6 is not to lay out a theological treatise of the nature of the Father. This is like passing, and he says all of this about who God is. He dwells in unapproachable light? What in the world? And that's exactly the point. He is not of this World, You have better chances than landing the, on the surface of the sun than coming close to He who lives in unapproachable light. But even this, no slight on the Holy Spirit-breathed text, it only goes so far. Genesis 1 teaches us that God spoke light into existence, so He brought that which we cannot even comprehend into being by merely speaking it. Are you lost yet? I am. You cannot explain God, our God, which art in heaven. When Moses asked to see God's glory, the Lord had to hide him in the cleft of the rock and allow him to only see the glow which followed behind him. When Isaiah caught a vision of God seated on his throne, he couldn't even bring himself to describe his features. He only spent his ink in his pen writing about the train of God's robe. When John was trying to write down the revelation of Jesus to him on the island of Patmos, he fell down as dead. Friend, i got to tell you, if you are waiting to understand God, you're going to be waiting an awfully long time. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind can even imagine what He has prepared for you. If you could explain Him, He would not be much of a God. If you could could even explain what He does, you'd be going against God's Word. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. He knows what we will never know. He sees what we will never see because He is in heaven. When I was in junior high, apparently I had a lot of reminiscence about junior high this week. I played on a soccer team. And um, as was the case for most of the teams that I played on, I think you'll see the common denominator, we were subpar. <laughs> apparently, my coach was getting a little frustrated that what he was trying to explain to us wasn't really sinking in. So, in the post practice huddle, which was always encouraging, um, he asked, how many of you have even watched a soccer game on TV? Not a one of us raised our hands. None of us had ever seen a soccer game on TV. I know my audience here in Cheatham County, none of you have ever seen, Now, a few of you have, I'm sure. He hung his head. The next practice was the greatest practice we ever had because there were no sprints, there were no suicides, there were no laps, there was no jog sprints, there was no anything. He had set up the next practice to us to meet at one of the teammates' homes who lived right by the field and all we did, 15 or so of us, crammed into that family's living room and we watched a soccer game on their TV. I can't remember who won, I can't remember who was even playing, but that one practice helped us understand more about the game than any other drill that he ever did. Why? Because soccer on TV in the 90s was mainly watching an aerial view of the whole field. There wasn't a whole lot of up-close-and-personal shots to the players. You saw a bird's-eye view of the entire game. And just watching how the game unfolded from that point of view helped us understand what we did not see on the field level. We grasped after that. Maybe didn't execute all the time, but we understood what pulling the other team off sides meant. We saw the thousand pass and goes that happen in every game. We understood the importance of spreading and settling because we had seen a bird's eye view seated above what's going on in the playing field. You know, when Isaiah wrote about God in heaven, he said this, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. How does that make you feel, egotistical Christian? who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So our Father, which art in heaven, ought to make us sit back and praise his name for who he is and what he does. He sees what we cannot see because he's seated above. He does what we could never do because we are as grasshoppers in his sight. He is who we cannot even imagine. He's awesome, and I don't mean that in the petty, pathetic Way that we use that word, overused, trite way. I mean it in the full extent of He is summoning awe in the hearts of His creation. Awesome and awful, filled with awe. That awe, it could cripple us in a fear of coming to Him, but then you couple it with that phrase, Our Father, which art in heaven. And I understand, I always have access to our Father. We live in an amazing world of connectivity. Just last night, our girls were able to FaceTime their grandparents, talk to them, show them, our, uh, show them over video, new bikes and, and flowers growing and some projects that they've been working on. That's something that, has just happened over the last few years really when we lived out of state as a as a kid when i lived out of state as a kid my mom had to buy a cassette recorder and she would have to record one-way conversations and mail them to her parents so that they could Stay in touch with what's going on because on base we didn't have access to the phones all the time. So she would mail cassettes to them, and you could hear three-year-old Corey talking-ish and and describe, you know, first steps and stuff like that over cassette. A generation ago, we only had party lines. Three generations ago, we only had telegraph. Even more and more we can go back, Pony Express, where it took 10 days for a letter to travel 1,800 miles. The fact that you and I can pick up a five-inch device and automatically reach Shannon, our missionary in Tokyo, via video this afternoon, it blows my mind. Don't call Shannon this afternoon. She'll be asleep in her time, Uh, so don't do that. But it's amazing that in this world of such connectivity, that we still have issues. I know that all this will garner is a handful of people running up to me afterwards asking who my cell phone provider is and suggesting theirs because you get a better rate, or something like that if you add a friend. But I have pretty good cell phone reception just about everywhere in the world, except Pleasant View. Seriously, we have taken our phones as far west as Arizona, south as Cosmel, east as Virginia, and north as Chicago, and I don't think I have, I, I might have lost service maybe a handful of times, but there is something that happens in the heart of Pleasant View. Music streaming services stop Ways quits, and the 30th text of the few things that Rachel wants me to pick up at Dollar General, which is never a few things, it just never gets through until I come pulling up in the driveway and attached to our home's Wi-Fi. It's hilarious to me that as wide and broad as connectivity is in our own world, my own hometown is a dead spot. Add to the mentor family's cell phone woes. There's not a week that goes by when I don't need someone in that moment, but they are unable to take my call. Dead spots, busy signals. I, I know this is over, overly simplistic, maybe even trite to some of you, but when Jesus proclaims, our Father, which art in heaven, you need to understand that what he's saying is that the Lord is not affected by either of those things. He is always accessible, never out of reach, never busy. Instead of honing in on location here, most Bible scholars believe that Jesus is claiming that our Father is in heaven, it's really a proof or a show of his omnipresence. If he's able to be in heaven, then he is also everywhere. Omnipresence is a theological term we use to describe the fact that God is always ever-present. When King Solomon was praying the prayer of dedication over the temple of God which he had just built, he says in 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. So when Jesus says, our Father which art in heaven, he's not saying, no, he's just up here. He's nowhere else. No, Solomon is saying he is everywhere, not in a pantheistic way, he's everything, but he is everywhere, always present. Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And Solomon understood this, that the heavens is is not just the Lord's main abode, but he can be everywhere, that the heavens cannot contain him because of a father that he had, by the way, by the name of David, who truly understand the omnipresence of God. When he sang in Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Christian, our God, our Father can always be reached without busy signal or dead spot because He is enthroned in heaven, yet He stoops low to be with us Everywhere. He hears and He knows. Our Father, which art in heaven, address all access authority. When I hear our Father, which art in heaven, I'm reminded that He has full authority over my life this one goes without saying but being where i can never get means that he can do whatever i what i never could not only does this introduction of the lord's prayer speak to the lord's omnipresence but also his omnipotence the fact that he is all powerful unhindered always able I had a totally different direction in which I was going to end until Brother Jeff sent the text yesterday about the songs that we were going to sing this morning. What would you think about what you've just proclaimed through song? By the way, when we sing There's a lot of promising going on. There's a lot of oaths being taken. And the Lord warns about taking an oath lightly. So I want you to sing, but I want you to understand what you're singing. Think about what you have sung this morning. Brother Jeff selected perfect songs from the span of several centuries of church history. I sing the mighty power of God. You know, that song was first published in 1715 in a hymn book for children. Does that sound like a kid's song to you? It doesn't to me. It's funny how an 18th century child's song is now considered almost high church in some churches. Over, oh, singing, I sing the mighty power of God. Isaac Watts, wow, I should have worn a tuxedo to church this morning or something like that. We sing the mighty power of God. That made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. We sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. That's our Father, which art in heaven. Think about the song we ended with. Holy, holy, holy. It comes to us all the way from Calcutta, India. Throws you for a loop, doesn't it? Calcutta, India from Reginald Heber who was a 40-year-old man who left the splendor of Oxford University for the strangeness of another country so that others could hear about our Father. By the way, he only lived there three years. But in that time, before he died, in that time, He wrote, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. How great thou art, that's some of y'all's favorite song, and rightfully so. It was actually written by a Swedish Bible teacher, Carl Moberg, in the early 1900s, and it remained in the original Russian language. I don't know why a Swedish man was writing in Russian, but he was. He was He was brilliant. But it remained in Russian until Stuart Hine came along in 1949, and he reworked it in English, and I'm so glad that he did. Oh, Lord, my God. When I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds Thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art. You have sung these songs and even the newest, from everlasting to everlasting, that there was never a time in which God does not exist. You have sung all of those this morning. Did you mean it? Our Father, which art in heaven. Our Father is full of power, greatness, eternality, and holiness. He is in heaven, yet he hears us. And he invites us to pray. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.